Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, Heads up, fellow conspiracy realists, in the course of this episode, you may hear what sounds like a few muffled explosions. They are not the brilliant design of our super producer. Uh, They are the nefarious design of some guys who decided to build a staircase today behind my house so just if, if <laughs> you know yeah so i just sure, wanted to make that trying to, trying to improve the area <laughs> <laughs> it's it's strange it's strange but uh you know wishing them the best they're better than the leaf blower guy who i think is a nemesis for a lot of us nowadays what kind of staircase are we talking ben is it a nice spiral staircase is it some like brutalist architecture or is it just a run-of-the-mill you know set of stairs you know, it is uh, it is in the running, Noel, for the noisiest set of stairs <laughs> I have ever encountered. Uh, I don't know if it's mm. a PR stunt a promotion for the advantages of elevators. Unclear. Hey, did we ever find out if we're going to get sued for the, was it Dr. Dre? Who was it? Notorious B.I.G. in the background? We're not, right? <laughs> I don't I don't think so. I, I hope not. Um, and... Please, any legal department's listing, treat that as the tribute it is. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> treat that as the tribute it is. Uh, today's episode comes to us courtesy of our fellow conspiracy realist, Tom, over in Europe. And Tom, you wrote to ask us about a proven conspiracy that took place not too long ago It's a conspiracy that many people have never heard of, which is going to be odd when when we get further into the story. And our story really begins with NGOs, one in particular, Greenpeace. We were talking about this a little bit off air. Have you guys ever met anybody who volunteered for Greenpeace? No, I knew somebody who was in the Peace Corps. That's not the same thing, though, I don't think. No, honestly, I've not met any individual who's worked for them. 
Yeah, what is what does that mean, guys? I, I, the same on my end. Are we just like terrible people? We don't move and do gooder circles. I think you're right. <laughs> or 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 hot take. It's uh-huh. not real. There is no green peace. Uh. <laughs> I like I like both of these. Uh, it's true. There are going to be some people in the audience today who are thinking, "Oh, hold on, guys, hold your badgers." Greenpeace isn't all that great. And it's true that Greenpeace has a lot of critics. So maybe maybe we start with the origins of Greenpeace to really get into the conspiracy today. Here are the facts. What is it? Sounds cool. Well, it describes itself as a, quote, global independent campaigning organization that uses peaceful protest and creative communication to expose global environmental problems and promote solutions that are essential to a green and peaceful future. Oh, I had to take a breath there in the middle. That's a lot of stuff, um, a lot to unpack. Sounds good on the surface, though, doesn't it? It really does. And its origins go back to a time when that kind of thing, that kind of effort was very popular. Uh, back to the 1960s, officially founded in 1971. So there's activism occurring in the 1960s, and it kind of turns into this organization called Greenpeace. Yeah, so the origins of what we know as Greenpeace today uh, come from anti-nuclear testing activism. Mm-hmm. Specifically, you know, the the protests leading to Greenpeace really kicked off in the 60s, but the organization was officially founded in 1971 explicitly to stop nuclear testing at Amchitka Island in Alaska. That's right. And they really did focus on nuclear testing and preventing that from occurring in the future for for a little while there, uh, so at least several years. In 1972, there's a gentleman named David McTaggart, he took a small, uh, small sailing vessel along with two other Greenpeace, I guess, members, and they sailed out to this place called the French Exclusion Zone in the Pacific. And the whole point there was to stop the French government from exploding another nuclear weapon in a test out there in a specific atoll that they had control over because uh, France has some land essentially or some land and ocean area that they own out there in the Pacific Islands and they sailed this ship out this you know small little vessel in essentially just defiance of the French government and saying well we're here you can't really test a nuke because we're here sorry Mm -hmm. and uh, they they went back and forth this is a pattern for Greenpeace they they go back and forth opposing various institutions they're doing things that they find objectionable. And it expands beyond uh, worries about nuclear weaponry. Uh, The organization has always been relatively loose-knit, and it started tackling these other global issues. So I don't know about you guys, but when I think of Greenpeace, uh, before we dove into this, I would immediately think of someone on a boat trying to stop whalers. You know, that's what I associate them Mm -hmm. with. Yeah, almost more like a PETA situation or something that's more humanitarian towards wildlife and like the environment in particular. Well, yeah, and and they are known for that because that is what Greenpeace did for a long time, especially, you know, from the mid 1970s to around the mid actually until the early 1980s when they picked nuclear testing back up. But I I just want to jump back to France really quickly, guys. I'm sorry, I didn't completely finish what I was going to talk about there. Just because this episode is dealing with France, and it's kind of, I don't want to spoil too much right now, but it's dealing with Greenpeace versus the French military, basically, and the French government. So that time in 1972, when they took that small vessel out there, uh, they ended up, their, their boat ended up getting rammed, and they got arrested. But it didn't deter them from going back, because the next year, in 1973, McTaggart and the crew returned for a second demonstration. This time, the French authorities tried to bribe them. (laughs) They were like, okay, just get out of here, please. We want to test nuclear weapons, guys. And they they tried to give them $5,000 or at least the equipment. Yeah, it was $5,000 U.S. at the time in 1973. Uh, Didn't work. Then they sent a small, like, I don't know. It's not a dinghy, I don't think. But it's like an inflatable craft, essentially, or a small a tiny little boat out Can of we just it call was it full a of military. Let's just call I love a dinghy. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm, 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 it's a dinghy. <laughs> uh, 
But there were they were some military operatives from probably the French government or someone on behalf of the French government. I'm not exactly sure who it was, but there is photographic evidence of it. They came out to the ship, boarded and beat the living crap out of the Greenpeace members. The only reason why we know about it is because one of one of the crew members had a still camera and was able to snap a couple shots while it's happening, then like jumped down inside the sailing ship and hid the camera. And the authorities found a second camera that they thought was the one she was taking pictures with and destroyed the film and threw it in the ocean. But she had hidden the other camera and that film survived. So it was just proof that it had occurred. All that's to say Greenpeace and the French government slash military are at odds already in the early 70s. Greenpeace in multiple countries, I would say, especially France. That seems like a low price for a bribe. And uh, sending French commandos on a scene like that is no laughing matter. Those guys don't mess around. So you have to at least, um, whether or not you agree with Greenpeace's tactics, you do have to uh, commend their uh, courage in, in pursuing you know, these ideals. When we say that they use creative communication, that, that little bit of PR speak uh, from their official site, it's helpful to have examples of what we mean because it verges into performance art. Like uh, there was a time when 10 Greenpeace activists dressed as polar bears to protest against Arctic drilling by Gazprom, the, the Russian energy giant. And then they also dressed as zombies and took over uh, Quezon City in the Philippines in 2012. So this is like theater as protest as well. Uh, they, in addition to uh, attempting to prevent people from hunting seals and cetaceans, they also work actively to prevent the dumping of toxic uh, radioactive waste at sea. Historically speaking, they tend to use what they call direct but nonviolent actions. So just like you were describing, Matt, they'll, they'll steer a small uh, dinghy between a whaler's harpoon and the target, and the, or they'll go over to an industrial pipe that's discharging waste and they'll physically plug it up. These things can be expensive for those institutions, but they themselves uh, endeavor not to harm other people. So you might hear uh, NGO like this described with the phrase eco-terrorist, right? Mm -hmm. Or they're committing acts of eco-terrorism by damaging property. But to be very clear, they are not actively out there, you know, kidnapping people or bombing them and stuff like that. But all these, all these actions, whether they're to bring awareness to something or whether they're to prevent what is seen as an environmental crime, have brought Greenpeace a lot of attention over the years, a ton of attention. But make no mistake, folks, not all of this attention is positive. This is true. But let's just not forget that Greenpeace is also active in the legal and regulatory spheres and have been uh, a huge voice in pushing for tighter environmental regulation and oversight. And like we said earlier, just the kinds of things that you would associate probably automatically with when you when you think of Greenpeace. Um, and sometimes these efforts uh, have been very successful. Um, and today, the organization has a pretty small staff, most of uh, whom are volunteers. And um, a lot of their funding comes from donations from individuals. So how do we separate kind of the fact and the fiction and the controversy? Uh, these are three kind of tiers of today's episode in Greenpeace. Yeah, it's a good question, Noel. So as you can imagine, Greenpeace sees itself speaking truth to power, right? These are folks who are, you know, nobody is involved in Greenpeace to get rich. They are, as you said, volunteers, and they get into direct conflict with some of the world's most powerful institutions, uh, some of the biggest corporations that you may or may not have heard of, as well as, you know, as you pointed out, Matt, state-level actors. And so, of course, this creates a lot of criticism, but it's not just from these institutions. You know what I mean? It's not just like Captain Planet villains having a problem with Captain Planet and the, uh, what do you call it? The Planeteers. Shout out to Hart, man. I always thought they, I always thought he got the short end of the stick, but he did get a monkey. He did have a monkey. What was his monkey's name? Well, the guy's name was, no, I forgot. gosh, there was Kwame. 
He was water, maybe? Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm really doing bad with my Captain Planet trivia, but the monkey was adorable. Um, you're right, though. Heart, I didn't really get a sense that that, like, what, it was his power to make people, like, you know, feel emotional. I guess so. <laughs> Dude, if you can change hearts and minds, I mean, the heart is connected to the mind. And if you can change <laughs> hearts, guys, you can do anything. So secretly, it was a mind control power all along. Yeah, they just didn't want to spook everyone. But the the reason we're bringing up this Captain Planet comparison is because it's important to know that not all the people who criticize Greenpeace over the years are like Gazprom or something or the French military or something. There are people who have worked for Greenpeace in the past that are no longer with the organization uh, and have some pretty bluntly critical things to say about it. But because this is a loose-knit organization with several different types of causes, a lot of the criticism tends to be issue-specific. So somebody might say, for instance, and just a made-up example, someone might say, look, I am totally with Greenpeace. We need to end whaling now, but they're acting crazy when they're against nuclear power. Clean energy is the way of the future. You know what I mean? So they might not throw the entire organizational baby out with the bathwater, but again, their critics are not all evil. In 2016, 107, 107 Nobel Prize laureates signed a letter begging Greenpeace to stop its opposition to GMOs, genetically modified organisms. Um, and you can you can read about these incidents. They're they're pretty well documented. Uh, but they've also been they've also been accused of either unintentionally or maybe intentionally exaggerating the uh, severity of certain issues. Like uh, it turned out they were inaccurate when they were reporting the amount of toxic waste on something called the Brent Spar oil storage buoy in 1995. And they, they went back and corrected it, but sort of the damage was done, you know, and then anybody who was opposed to their agenda would be able to say, these guys are making a mountain out of a molehill, uh, they're enemies of progress, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And really just this anti-nuclear weaponry, deterrence, proliferation, all that stuff, um, being anti-biotech, anti-innovation, yeah, some, some would argue that. Um, some have argued that it's really just an anti-technology group. Like it's an anti-progress group, but I don't, I don't know about that. That's certainly been, they've been accused of that. Right. And I wanted to talk to you guys really quickly before we jump into the, you know, the next section here, this concept of being anti-nuclear weapon, um, especially weapon testing. It's such a gray area for me because Yes, and weirdly, and I I haven't always felt this way, but simply because we've talked about on this show so many times the reasons that a country would have nuclear weapons, have that capability, and also show it off to an extent and learn as much as they can about it as a way of preventing themselves from being at risk from other world superpowers with nukes. I can see why a government um, or a country like France would be very much interested in testing nuclear weapons in the 1960s and 70s as the Cold War is escalating between the the other superpowers. Um, I can see why they would want to establish their position as a powerful nation that can't be messed with, essentially. You know, there, there can be machinations in South America and some of these other places where, you know, the Soviet Union and the United States are playing their little war games and or, you know, terrorizing humans and nations like they would want that really badly. And it could be very beneficial for all of the citizens of France. So the greater good argument, I think I can see for France, for people in charge there. It's tough to say that to the people at the testing sites, though, right? Exactly. On the other side, like you're wreaking absolute havoc on people in in the environment which they lived for, you know, however many generations. I'm not saying the nuclear testing is a good thing. I'm saying that I can see it more clearly now why it was viewed as so important to the French government. Yeah, and we've we've talked about similar, you know, highly unethical problems in the past. Imagine being one of those U.S. scientists who says, okay, our best plan is to steal the bodies of children. 
And everybody signed off on it because they thought, you know, they thought it was a dirty job, but it was for an ultimately better world. Uh, and, you know, that's up to future historians to debate the uh, accuracy of that or the sincerity, I would argue. But but I guess what I'm at the end of that, I, I agree with you. It, I think it's not hard for any of us to see why Greenpeace's stance in the 1970s and then later what we're about to enter into of being against nuclear testing was kind of a no brainer. Um, like, yes, well, yeah, a, a lot of people can get behind that notion. But, but what's the alternative by being against nuclear testing? Are you also just purely against nuclear weapons? Yeah, that's that's the thing, because uh, it's a dual use technology. There's not really it's, it's really tough. It's a tall milkshake to continually monitor a country with nuclear capabilities and somehow ensure that they never just keep the centrifuges spinning uh, to the point that they create nuclear weapons. You know, it's it's tough. It's a dilemma. But the big takeaway here is this. Uh, Greenpeace started because they wanted global disarmament as an, as an ultimate end goal. And today, opponents of Greenpeace will argue that it might create more problems than it attempts to solve. And supporters of Greenpeace may argue that, look, hey, this organization is imperfect, but cut them some slack. Their overall aim is some real Captain Planet stuff. They're well-intentioned. Uh, if their stuff works, then it's vital to the long-term sustainability of life on Earth, human life as well as wildlife. And, you know, usually these disagreements and these tensions result in heated legal battles, sometimes public protest and uh, confrontations, and then arguments and debate. Until one day, France blew their ship out of the water. We're going to pause for a moment for a word from our sponsors, and then we'll introduce you to Operation Satanic. What did you say? Clearly involves puppies, right? I mean, it just has to. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. 
he says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Here's where it gets crazy. All right, now let's introduce you to The Rainbow Warrior. You saw the title of this episode. That's what this whole thing's about. The Rainbow Warrior was a trawler-class vessel, a, a ship. Not not just a boat. This is a ship, guys. And it was built in the United Kingdom in 1955. And it was called the Sir William Hardy. It is up to you whether the name, whether you prefer the name Rainbow Warrior or Sir William Hardy. Uh, this is a trawler is essentially a, a motorboat uh, that is seaworthy. So mm-hmm. they wanted this because it can make long ocean voyages. It's not super impressive, as you know, it's not on the level of a billionaire's yacht or something. No one's living the high life on this. It's it's a workboat for a mission, and when Greenpeace UK got a hold of the vessel back in 1977, that's when they renamed it. They spent about four months retrofitting it, and on May 2nd, 1978, they launched it, and they decided to call it the Rainbow Warrior. It's named after a book written by one of the co-founders of Greenpeace, a guy named Robert Hunter, wrote a book called Warriors of the Rainbow. The titular line of the book, if you're interested, is, the world is sick and dying. The people will rise up like warriors of the rainbow. I'm not 100% sure what that means, but it's inspirational. Well, it's like, um, you know, warriors from all over the place who look like who, who look like everyone possibly could look on Earth and we're all going to fight for okay. it. Okay, yeah, It's cool, that's, man. That's something you could get behind, you know. Super chill uh, <laughs> in a revolutionary kind of way. Um, but it's... It should be noted that this ship was just rusted out, looked nasty. You can see footage of it in um, there's a documentary that Greenpeace put out that's called The Boat and the Bomb. So you can really check out some retro footage of this ship as it was being changed over into uh, the Rainbow Warrior. It definitely needed that four month glow up. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. But let's uh let's just jump from there. 1978, I think, is when it was fully retrofitted. But then 1981, after it had been out on a couple of different missions, they reignite this campaign that had kind of gone away since the early 70s, this um, anti-nuclear weapons testing campaign. And when they did that, they wanted the Rainbow Warrior not just to be a fossil fuel-powered vehicle, they wanted to be a little greener. Hey, come on, the name's Greenpeace, right? So they they further retrofitted the thing. They put sails on it, massive sails. So now it's both a motorboat and a sailing vessel. And that's that's form and function there. And if you think about it, that move makes sense because the most immediate criticism for an organization like Greenpeace using a boat like this would be, hey, you guys know what those, those run on, right? So it's it's a valid it's a valid uh, criticism, and our story really kicks off here in 1985. The Rainbow Warrior sets sail for Auckland, New Zealand, and they are on the way to a very specific, infamous atoll in the world of environmentalism. That's right, the Mururora Atoll. The idea was to connect with this assembly of eight other vessels, this flotilla, um, and prevent the next firing of a nuclear weapon. Um, and this area had long been a popular destination for testing. You know, atolls and remote islands often are, like the Marshall Islands episode we just talked about, where the risk of collateral damage is seen on paper as being, you know, low. But we know what happened with that story. Um, it happened has long-term consequences that are not often thought of up front. But as long as the, the math adds up, then it'll all be okay. But it, you know, often isn't. So in 1966, the French had begun testing nuclear weapons in this area, and they'd continue to do so till 1996, which is crazy to me. Despite these uh, very intense protests, um, and Greenpeace says and argues that the initial test alone, which was codenamed All Deboran, 
I believe that's how you pronounce it, which happened on July 2nd in 1966, spread contamination as far as Peru and New Zealand. That's that collateral damage we're talking about. Uh, and it oftentimes, you know, far exceeds initial expectations um, because, you know, there's all kinds of other variables like the, the winds and currents and things like that. Um, so it's an absolute understatement to say that tensions ran high. They ran absolutely nuclear, uh, pun completely intended um that wasn't really a pun whatever it was it was very tense it was <laughs> wordplay it was wordplay thank you ben i appreciate you having my back um but these french commandos you see had boarded uh, a previous protest boat um that trespassed into this uh, exclusionary shipping zone that was bordering the atoll and greenpeace knew full well or at least you know to some degree that the risks were there and they planned to monitor the impact of these tests and place and place protesters on the ground to monitor the actual blast. Yeah, like we can't stop you, but the world will witness your actions on this day. And these are very motivated people. They are, again, they're not working on a profit motive. They are working uh, toward, in their ideology, a better world. And they're not there to attack these uh, military officers or attack the scientists conducting these tests, but they want, to, they want to do their best to make it really inconvenient to conduct these tests. And, you know, I think in Greenpeace's, uh, in Greenpeace's favor, they were one of the organizations that was openly saying something that I think a lot of governments were privately saying, which is this, you all do not know the full extent of your actions. You do not know the consequences. Uh, you will probably mess something up and maybe you'll get some valuable data, but that is not going to you know, improve the lives of the people who may suffer the consequences of these experiments. But Greenpeace, despite being very aware of the dangers of nuclear Armageddon, they were blissfully unaware of some things closer to home. You see, folks, Greenpeace did not know that before they went on this fateful trip to the atoll, they had already been compromised and for quite a while. Yeah, that's right. There was a person named Christine Carbon. She was not just your regular old person. She was an agent. Oh, yeah. A spy. She was working for France's Directorate General for External Security, or the DGSE. This is, again, in the same way the CIA operates outside of the U.S. or MI6 operates outside of the U.S. That's what this, this uh, organization does. DGSE. Remember that name. So she had gone in and volunteered to join Greenpeace. And back in the day around that time, it was super easy to infiltrate Greenpeace. You just said, hey, I want to help. <laughs> and they're like, come on in. The story checks out. Hop yeah. on board. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and she she infiltrated through Auckland, New Zealand, which is, interestingly enough, where, remember, we already talked about this, where the Rainbow Warrior had set out to go uh, before they went over to the atoll in the area where the testing is actually occurring, because it's, it's not that far away. And she posed as someone else. She pretended to be someone named Frederic Bonlieu, and she was an, and this character that she was portraying was an environmentalist. She was all about Greenpeace, all about anti-nuclear proliferation and stopping testing. But really what she was doing is just going, oh, oh what's that? And then <laughs> making a phone call to somebody and taking notes and uh, just monitoring all the communications, collecting maps where they're going to go. If there are any plans or information, intel on what's about to occur, she's doing this stuff. And uh, she's also checking out the tech that's aboard the ship. Like, what capabilities does this ship have and how, how can we subvert them? And let's get some specifics on the hull. Says Frederick, you know, I'm a, I'm a, just like you guys, I'm a utility player. I want to know everything. I want to get in where I can fit in. And the Rainbow Warrior, you know, there, there was a lot of PR around it because this makes for great headlines. So for a time, it was open for public viewing and all sorts of tourists and honeymooners and supporters of Greenpeace uh, and just curious onlookers uh, toured the ship to learn more about what Greenpeace planned to do with this vessel. Thing is, some of those tourists were also 
uh, DGSE. They were operatives. It's such it, this part of spycraft always seems so. I know it's got to be uh, a real nail biter on the anxiety scale, but I always wondered: Do they take acting lessons? Like, if you are if you are posing as a couple on honeymoon who just happened to walk by a ship and wants to take a tour of it, do you have to like practice acting like a couple? You know, do Dude. you spend a week together just? working on your bits i don't it's, know it's called improv for espionage yeah it is <laughs> yes. you know i i don't have personal experience but i would say acting classes would probably help out yeah 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 you, i think you're right to a degree um and they're they're really interesting stories about how people train spies to act undercover there's a, there's there was a, a great interview with the lady who was in charge of CIA disguises for a number of years. And what's funny about that is that she is pretty casual with it. She's like, okay, we can teach people to walk differently. We can give them wigs. We can change different parts of their appearance. Here are the things I think work. Here are the things I think don't work. And when she was asked, like, what is the number one problem with, you know, having people move in these false personas or disguises, she said, ego. She was like, none of nobody wants to look bad. And, you know, if you think about it, looking a little bit homely would help you with your cover, right? Unless you're supposed to be a model or a, a movie star. But anyway, that aside. I, I would say that's what always works out in those undercover TV shows with models and or superstars. The only way they get them to fit in is making them more homely. Yeah. Yeah, let's give him a give him a weird nose. Look more like us. <laughs> now we look okay. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to rate us, but I think I think we look all right. Uh, anyway, solid eights, uh, solid seven seven five eights. Oh, you know that's nice, man. That's it's good for. I'm not going to ask what the scale is there, but thank you. Unclear. <laughs> Goes so, to twenty. All right, continue. <laughs> All right, so so here's what happens. Um, clearly, you know, Greenpeace is relying on transparency because they want the support of the public. They are not a military. They are not a government actor. So they depend on volunteers. They depend on people who agree uh, with both their goals and the ways in which they pursue those goals. And this comes back to haunt them. I suggest you take a pause for a word from our sponsor and return to July 10th, 1985. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. 
With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. We're back. Set the scene. The ship is docked. It is pretty late. There's been a birthday party on the vessel earlier that evening, and there are about 12 people on board. The ship is prepping to head out to confront uh, the French authorities conducting this nuclear test. And right before the stroke of midnight, an explosion rocks the vessel. Boom. (sighs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, as you can imagine, chaos ensues. The crew uh, scrambles to escape. It's not the time to go into the engine room and see what made that noise. They want to stay alive, right? And that uh, is where the ex- first explosion originates, is in, in or near the engine room. Right, exactly. And so uh, everybody is getting off the vessel, and there's, they wait for a second, just a second. There's one guy, a Portuguese photographer named Fernando Pereira, and after this explosion, after he, he gets away, he looks around and he thinks, oh, snap, I need to get all of my stuff, my equipment. We're documenting this. I'm a photographer. I, I need my camera and my film. And so he returns to the ship to grab his gear right after that first explosion. And he's on board when the second explosion occurs. Yeah. And he's killed um, by that second explosion and his death was the impetus for the, the initial investigation into this whole situation. Uh, one of the largest in the history of New Zealand. Um, a homicide investigation begins, and two French agents, Captain Dominique Prier and Commander Alan Maffar, uh, are identified um, by a local neighborhood watch. Which is right? Yeah. Like, what? There's, like, neighborhood watches at sea? I mean, that's that's very unusual. Well, there's I mean, some, there's a lot of weirdness that's going on behind the scenes that we later find out. There were numerous French agents inside Auckland at the time, specifically focusing on this this ship, this vessel, on the Rainbow Warrior, and on Greenpeace's activities. And it's crazy. We we can maybe talk about it a little more. Several of the uh, either teams of agents and or just individual agents were not so good at being spies, I guess, at like covering their tracks and at being inconspicuous. Yeah. And and not to backseat, not to play backseat espionage, right? Yeah. Sorry. I mean, dude. Yeah. uh, Do you, you know, it's just, they were, they were much more easily identified by groups like that neighborhood watch than you would expect. How amazing be the people that neighborhood watch, though? They must have been pretty impressed with themselves, Oy. right? That's. I think this guy might be a spy. That is a big one. I mean, if I was uh, on a neighborhood watch and I, you know, landed this whale, um, I would feel pretty good about myself and feel like neighborhood watches uh, far and wide should take note. No, he's not a spy. Why would he be a spy in Auckland? No, he's not a spy. What, 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 what is accent that? is this? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> this is kind of cockney. A little bit of uh, Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it. Feels like a spy is trying out some accents. Um, <laughs> watch out for bits. That's what I remember. That's from what Flight of the Concords. But, but also, if you're that neighborhood watch person, and we don't have the specific name of the individual or pe- or individuals in the neighborhood watch who were instrumental in these arrests, but if I were that person, I'd make certain that comes up in some way 
in every like neighborhood meeting, every HOA meeting. Oh, hey, uh, New Zealand Ben, you're not you're not mowing your lawn on time. And I'm like, oh, sorry, I was busy saving the neighborhood. I don't know where I don't know where your priorities are, Gladys. But um, if I'm catching spies, I can't do it while I'm mowing my lawn. I would yeah. be insufferable. For me, it would be like, raise your hand. Uh, hi, Matt Frederick. Caught those spies that one time. Neighborhood watch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so uh, you know, good on them, honestly. But this becomes very complicated very quickly because, as you said, Matt, there is a lot of stuff going on in the background. It's not just these two guys. And at this point, carbon hasn't been made yet. She's still Frederic. And uh, there's a problem because there's public outcry, right? New Zealand is saying this is a terrorist attack. France is an ally of New Zealand. And at first they're like, yeah, it's crazy. I don't, I mean, what happened? The world is a nutso place, you guys. And then they said, of course, we aren't involved. Like all these other nations, we condemn this terrorist act. The French embassy in Wellington stated explicitly, the French government does not deal with its opponents in such ways. What is interesting about this, it is that it was completely false. It was completely false. The, the people issuing the statement probably knew it was completely false. Those two agents, when they got arrested, they, it came out that they had Swiss passports. When they got made and their identities got burned, it's an instant smoking gun for France, right? You can f- see these guys' reps. You can see their history. What? It turns out that they were not who they said they were. Carbon slash Frederic has successfully escaped internationally to Israel just before the attack occurred. And there are a lot of other people, later researchers would learn, from these two diving teams that also got away. And some of it really is action movie stuff. Like one one of the teams that transported the explosives, they did so on a yacht, and then they... Um, well, they did get detained in Australia, but because of Australian law, they couldn't be held. And so they, they went back on their yacht and they went off and then they hitched a ride with a French submarine and the French submarine sank the yacht. They were, this was very scorched earth. They, did, they really did not want to leave traces, but their attempts at a cover-up were, as you said, Matt, uh, quite unsuccessful. It was soon very, very clear to the government of New Zealand that their so-called ally France had clearly and purposefully and successfully conspired to blow the Rainbow Warrior out of the water, consequences be damned. And this is this is such an escalation from just trying to bribe people with five grand. Or even sending a bunch of heavies on board to beat up the people who are on that ship they're trying to protest. Even, we can talk about the intentions later, but even if... if the intentions of the government were simply to scuttle the ship or to, to sink the ship and not harm anybody. That's still an act of terrorism. <laughs> At least now it would be considered that. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, we have to keep in mind that some of these conversations aren't making it to the public sphere just yet. New, there's a moment where New Zealand sends over like physical evidence to France. Like, we know what you did. So yeah, we know what you did. Yeah, what's good? And this became a political scandal as word got out. So you see a domino effect of French politicians uh, leaving office. The Minister of Defense at the time, Charles Hernu, he resigns. And then the head of the DGSE is a guy named Admiral Pierre Lacoste. He is fired. Um, and, you know, if you're familiar with a lot of the upper reaches of Western politics, usually what happens when someone gets fired is they say they're retiring to spend time with their family or some, you know, something innocuous like that. That's the out they give you, I suppose. You know, no one wants to utterly, well, there are times where they do want to utterly run you up the flagpole. Um, but this was not one of those situations, I suppose. Sometimes you have to take a break to pursue painting if you're, <laughs> you know, an ex-president. Oh, 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 so this is the problem. though. They still have these two agents on the hook. The, the captains you mentioned earlier, Noel, they are, they have been arrested 
and they get eventually they get released to French custody and then they go free. But the reality of what happened behind the scenes, how those got how France got those guys back and how they got away with this attack, it's the dirty part of international affairs. These guys were both sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. They pled guilty to manslaughter. And then France went back to New Zealand and threatened to wage economic warfare. They said, look, we're going to shut your stuff down. You will not be able to export anything to Europe unless you give us our operatives back. And this was not an empty threat. It would have absolutely crippled New Zealand's economy. It was highly independent on agricultural exports to the United Kingdom. And this kind of like sending in the economic heavies, to borrow your earlier phrase, Matt, this stuff happens way more often than people would like to think. And, and It's like then, that book, yeah. the, econ- <laughs> the Economic Hitman. Yes, yeah, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. No kidding, that's a great read. On September 22nd, 1985, the prime minister at the time finally admits the bombing has been a, uh, a French plot. And he, he says... The truth is cruel. There was an operation. There was a resulting cover-up. And they went on to say agents of the French Secret Service sank this boat. They were acting on orders. The elephant in the room, the other shoe waiting to drop. Whose orders exactly? And that's a question that remains officially unanswered in the modern day. So in a way, the conspiracy is still afoot. The Western world, in New Zealand's opinion really dropped the ball. They didn't condemn France at all. And this had serious ramifications for the way the the way New Zealand saw other European countries, the way it saw the U.S. especially. And uh, in 1987, France ponied up compensation for the Portuguese photographer's family. And then they also gave Greenpeace the equivalent of $8.16 million. Uh, yeah, $8.16 million. So... After a little time goes by, details of the actual conspiracy start to trickle out. And here's what we know. There were two teams involved in transporting and placing those bombs. According to some confessions uh, obtained later, these confessions were from the, the operatives involved. The plan was never to injure anybody. With the boat docked, they thought they could just kind of render the ship inert, or, or at least just wreck it, uh, so it couldn't be used, but not actually risk losing any lives um but they they goofed didn't they uh the dive team placed the explosives as planned but the explosions were larger than they had predicted which to me doesn't that mean that there was too much explosive or is it just one of these things like we're talking about with circumstances that could cause you know variables that could cause the explosions to differ There's quite a few things going on here. First thing you need to know is that the original plan was to place the explosives on the opposite side of the hull, the other side of the ship. But there was another boat kind of near there and there seemed to be people on that uh, on that boat. And they didn't want to, at least according to the confessions here, they didn't want to harm anyone on that boat. So they decided just in the moment to switch sides on the boat. And again, the engine room is right there. The whole, like, who knows what factors led to the to the size of that explosion. But what we do know is that the explosion came from the outside of the ship. And the damage that you can see to the hull from that explosion that then goes in and moves into the boat is big. Yeah, and there's shrapnel flying. This is the thing. I think we're talking about this a little bit off air. This is one of the things that gets me. How are you going to so extensively plan an operation like this and, as one of the operatives later said, not test it? They didn't test it on a boat. And and Matt, you raised an interesting point uh, about how we should regard France's nuclear experiments, right? Those are the biggest explosives. And uh, I, I can't quite remember how you put it. Yeah, the French military has the time and funds to test all of those nukes, like however many at that time in 1985, however many they had tested at that point since the 60s. Uh, they had the time and all that money, the millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars to do that. But they didn't have enough time and money to test one 
probably small. What do you think? Maybe C4? I don't know. I doubt it was dynamite or anything like that. It was probably, it had to be some kind of plastic explosive. Mm-hmm. But uh, Yeah, but they didn't test that part. Everything else. They had these identities. Uh, they had personas. They had transported explosives through international waters. They never tested it out. And that's something that happens with a lot of government conspiracies. Something goes wrong. They messed up. And, you know, this, again, could be for any number of factors that change on the ground. But that first explosion wasn't even the major issue. The, even though it was larger than they expected and it did sink the ship faster than the timeline, you know, than they expected, that isn't what killed anybody. It was, it, like we said, it was that second explosion. Right, right. And you can even see the logic. The four-minute interval between explosions could be baked in to allow people to hear that first explosion, maybe even almost as a warning, and then abandon ship. But they didn't bet on someone, whatever their calculations were, they didn't bet on someone coming back so soon after that first explosion. And there's a really interesting interview out of TV New Zealand that was later aired on uh, Democracy Now!, I think, where you can, you can hear firsthand from one of the operatives uh, about what went down. It was 30 years after the fact. But before we get to that guy, let's, let's talk just a little bit about the continuing cover-up. So here's the thing. Other than the two men who were briefly arrested – No one ended up facing criminal charges for this act. Nobody other than those two guys, and they eventually were let go. In 2005, the French newspaper of note, Le Monde, released a report from 1986 uh, where the former head of DGSE said that it had been signed off by the president, Mitterrand. He he had explicitly said, yeah, okay, that makes sense, blow it up. And that's that, intense. Yeah, it's executive that, orders. Right, right. And so, you know, when this admiral comes forward, he also gives uh, his the newspaper interviews about this uh, situation. And he said, you know, personally, the, this weighs on my conscience. We were not trying to kill people. But as history has proven pretty often – Prosecuting a president is a difficult endeavor. There's a reason that the U.S. has that law about invading the Hague. Yeah, it's very true. I, I, want, I want to jump to this individual we're talking about, the operative that confessed. This is the guy that led operations on the ground or in the water in this case. He's the person in charge of the whole thing. And he is the one that physically placed, or at least he says he's the one who physically placed the explosives onto the ship. And it's intense that he's the one who came forward to confess all of this and and tell the world. And specifically to speak to the daughter of the photographer who was killed. Yeah, yeah, Jean-Luc Kister. Uh, And it's a pretty in-depth interview. Uh, he He answers questions that would naturally occur, like, why did you have a crisis of conscience 30 years after the fact, right? Um, And his answer is something that I think a lot of people in the audience could understand today. If not agree with, you can, you can understand where he's coming from. He said, look, this wasn't my only operation. I was active for a while. I was doing a lot of stuff, and I couldn't come forward because it could compromise those things. And then also, I'm first and foremost, I was a soldier. So I had to carry out orders. If you, if you are a soldier... In, you know, in his explanation, then you are mandated to do what you're told, even if you have questions or concerns, whether they are operational or ethical. So he heavily implies his hands were tied. He apologizes. Uh, and like you said, Matt, he requests the opportunity to speak with Perea's daughter and apologize in person, and she declines it. And so now, with uh, no real official consequences. The government of France has paid compensation. Uh, They've made apologies to New Zealand over the years a couple of different times. And the relationship between France and New Zealand seems to have normalized over the intervening years. But as we record today, don't be fooled. There's still calls for prosecution echoing in the halls of Greenpeace, echoing in the halls of New Zealand to the modern day. And this this is where our story for now pauses. And we have to ask, you know, 
at the risk of sounding cynical, Matt, Noel, I feel like the three of us in particular just sort of assume stuff like this is happening possibly now, right? And we just don't hear about it. Yeah, maybe not with, you know, sexy names like Rainbow Warrior, but uh, certainly this doesn't seem like too much of a stretch now. Well, yeah, I mean, it it does make me wonder the power about the powerful forces that go up against environmental activists of any kind. But it's weird because it feels like it, as we said before, it's these groups seem more like an annoyance to me for a big superpower like that than a real threat. Un- unless these forces really do put more weight into ah, kind of what we were talking about before the heart if they're if they're worried about heart more than you know uh some of the other powers um just from a from a pr from a hearts and minds standpoint of the voters in their country and or you know the other voting countries in nato and some of these other the un and these things i could see them wanting to stop those kind of annoyances or the things that make them look bad. Well, but it's also, it makes me think of a movie, um, a Brit, Brit Marling is like a actor, writer, director, and um, she made a couple cool films. One's called Another Earth. It's like a science fiction thing. And then she made one called The East that's about um, a environmental terrorist group um, that is uh, executing these covert attacks on major polluting corporations and i'm not saying that's that's what you should do and that's the only way to get it done but to to elevate uh, your cause from annoyance to uh absolute you know n- you know nemesis or to go toe-to-toe these companies either like you said matt have to really uh, have an effective way of changing the hearts and minds of people that really matter or you gotta just burn it all down um and that's not particularly productive either and then it makes you kind of just as bad as the people you're fighting but i understand the frustration when it comes to like how do i take a stand against these giant corporations when it feels like doing it the right way often falls on deaf ears and is sort of easily brushed to the side sure yeah because i mean you know the the fact of the matter is that it's very difficult for uh, someone to take on entities like this in court, you know, the, the expenses alone. Um, and my, I think we have similar questions because why would the French government not just arrest these people when they cross into the exclusion zone? And what consequences should there be for, for the people who were involved? And it, it's a question that hasn't been answer to the satisfaction of a lot of people. Obviously, we believe that there are more operations like this that have yet to be exposed. Uh, There may be some going on while we're recording. And this is where we pass the heart ring to you. What do you think? Uh, Why did France do this? What was their ultimate goal? What did they expect would happen? What other operations like this uh, do you believe have occurred in the modern day? And uh, you know, uh, when do you think the public will learn about them, if ever? Uh, we can't wait to hear from you. We try to be easy to find online. Yeah, find us online. We are Conspiracy Stuff on Facebook and Twitter, Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram. While you're tooling around on the internet, why not tool your way over to uh, Apple Podcasts and leave us a review? We would be much appreciative of said positive review. Five stars, if you please. Uh, and then you can also give us a call on the telephone, like uh, if you're old school and don't like to go on the internet. That's right. Our phone number is one eight three three stdwytk Leave us a message. Tell us what name you'd like for us to call you. It doesn't have to be your real name. Then say whatever you want us to play on air. Then after that, anything you want to say personally to us, please go for it. I know Paul Mission Control Deccan wants to hear from you, so he's waiting for your messages. Let's uh, let's put out a special call, messages for Paul, and uh, we'll have a special segment at some point, and we'll make Paul respond. <laughs> oh, I'm not a fan of making people do things. We too bad. Too bad. <laughs> All right, one eight three three call for Paul. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, if you don't care for the phone, if you don't care for social media, uh, no worries. Uh, we have your back. Uh, we don't want you to squeeze a 10-minute story into three minutes if it doesn't do it justice. You can respond to us in full. We read every email we get. Uh, and you can always, always send us a good old-fashioned email where we are. Conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. 
Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com.